welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our first season of rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. In this episode, we complete our three-part series on Aristotle's genres of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of forensic rhetoric. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Paul oid alopex al echinos hen mega. I couldn't have said it better myself, Tim. I agree. All right. So the question before us, what is forensic rhetoric? Tim, what is forensic rhetoric? That's the one where you're duking it out in some kind of a court of law about what happened. Did he do it? Did she do it? Did it happen? Can forensic rhetoric be used outside the courtroom? It can indeed. So uh, anytime you're trying to determine whether something did or did not happen, uh-huh. um, that's a forensic situation. Yeah, who discovered America first. Exactly. You wouldn't see that in superior court. No, that's not going to the courts. All right. So if somebody is going to charge somebody with wrongdoing or find out what happened in the past, uh, it makes sense that they know what the laws are, right, Tim? Got to know the law. And so Aristotle talks about the uh, two types of laws, right? There's the special or particular law. What's that, Tim? That's the one that includes all the explicit statutes of a political body. Okay. And then there's the general or unwritten rules, right? So the laws or customs or norms, I should say, for what a society goes by. Yeah, so supposedly things that are universal to all humanity. Can you give me an example of one of those? Well, you shouldn't eat your parents. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I've always, I've always said that, uh, but I've never written it down and put in the statutes. Right? Yeah, I mean, basically we had this, we're against matricide and fratricide and patricide and regicide, and we're against cannibalism. Uh-huh. Put them together, and you really shouldn't eat your parents. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, though, that might be written down that you just can't kill your parents, but not necessarily by eating them. I, I think, yes, you can't kill your parents is a law. Okay. Um, so we can certainly say, though, that uh, uh, it's wrongdoing, right? Oh, it is definitely a wrongdoing. It's a doing of wrong. Right, because you're hurting somebody or, you know, you're certainly hurting them by eating them. Mm-hmm. So special particular laws, laws that are written down, uh, uh, general or universal laws are things that aren't written down, kind of general things. I think a better example might be, you know, treat others how you wish to be treated, perhaps. Oh, that's, they talk about the golden rule, Supp- yeah. supposedly a part of all the great religions. Yes. Yeah, do so, unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yes, and so that's not necessarily codified into our laws, but it's a good, uh, 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 what is it, uh, guiding principle to live one's life by? I think so. All right, so when we're talking about these written and unwritten laws, uh, and wrongdoing, Aristotle says there's two types of wrongdoing, right? You can do it voluntarily or involuntarily. Oh, right? yeah, the old involuntary out. What is the old involuntary out, Tim? Well, basically, if it happened by chance or by nature or p- by compulsion, you are not necessarily responsible for it because it's involuntary. Right, so it's beyond your control. Aristotle would say if something happened, if you committed wrongdoing and it was by chance, by nature, or compulsion, that's not in your will, right? And so it, you were forced to do it. You can't control that stuff. So if I had a compulsion to say, I don't know, eat my parents, right? <laughs> I could not necessarily be held accountable for that, at least to the same degree as if I voluntarily did it, right? If, if it was really you were compelled to eat your parents, you mm-hmm. can't be held accountable. And that could be some, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, mental imbalance or something mm. like those, right? You could probably find that in one of those uh, diagnostic manuals. Mm. Well, like the ones Compulsory with my car? Compulsory parent eating. 
child's food, right? We're losing the compulsive parent eating uh, 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 audience. So that's the involuntary. There's voluntary wrongdoing, which is when you commit some wrongdoing because of habit, because of some reasoning, right? You thought about it, you had a passion towards it, or you desired to do it, right? Yeah, and this it's getting a little muddy here because what's the difference between a passion and a desire? And then you know how far are they from a compulsion? Mm-hmm. So I can see Aristotle, he loves to put things in nice, neat boxes, but sometimes if you look closely at those boxes, you know, the same thing yeah, can go the bottom in two has different fallen, boxes. Yeah, the bottom has fallen out of that yeah. box. Uh, so it is a little muddled, right? A little but, bit. But there is some distinctions there to be made. Perhaps a better it's to be a, seen as a continuum rather than something else. Yeah, but I, Aristotle doesn't like continuums. He no. likes digits. He likes boxes. He, he likes, likes either or. He likes walls between his categories. Mm, we got to break down those walls. All right, Tim, what motivates people to do wrongdoing or unjust things? Seeking pleasure is one motivation. I don't, I don't like the way you said that, Tim. It sounded <laughs> dirty. So doing what is in accordance to one's will. So, you know, I'm, I will my way to stealing some candy or to uh, overindulging in some intoxicant. Mm-hmm. And that's like wetting the appetites, he says. You know, if, you, if you're seeking pleasure to make yourself feel good, to get mm-hmm. some pleasurable benefit, yep. that's uh, a motivation for doing wrong th- wrongdoing or obtaining the difficult, right? Yeah, so that's, that's like, that's you know, hard. if you wanted to come in first in a, in a marathon and – you know, you want it so badly that you actually get on a subway in the middle of the marathon yeah. and cut an hour off your time. That might be an example of you're trying to obtain the difficult. You don't really have what it takes to obtain the difficult, mm-hmm. and it gets you into some wrongdoing. Yeah, but you might still get the award. You're just going to probably get caught later. Yeah, right? they, now that they got cameras everywhere. They do. Uh, and so the last thing that Aristotle mentions that motivates people to do unjust things is avoiding pain. Yeah, and so he starts off with this big category is seeking pleasure. And then he ends up with a subcategory, avoiding pain. Which is so just the opposite. Two sides of the same coin. Uh-huh. So that's why people, what motivates them to do unjust uh, crimes, but why do people actually commit them, right? So he says here, again, to seek pleasure. Yeah. Right? Uh, but he also says another thing that motivates people to commit crime is the belief that you won't get caught. Yeah. And if you do get caught, the belief that you won't be held accountable. Yeah. So uh, the presence of all those cameras is one of the things that's going to make people think they're going to get caught. But also, if you just happen to have this long tradition of privilege and not being held accountable, you say, Mm -hmm. I can get away with it because I got away with it in the past. Yeah. And then the last one, I appreciate this one, right? If you have a weak will. Oh, yeah. I, I'm down with that. Right? I get impulses to get uh, to do crime all the time, yeah. but I'm such a weak-willed person that I have to submit to them. Well, I'm not so much a criminal, but basically staying away from the vending machine downstairs that has those Twix bars, I just do not have the will to avoid that. You know, that reminds me of a good story about Dwight David Eisenhower. You know, uh, he won World War II, at least for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the, uh, the Supreme Allied Commander. And then he went and became president. And, you know, he had a heart attack. He had a heart attack. He had a rough rough living, right? So he smoked all the time. And do you know what happened after he had his heart attack and the doctor told him to not smoke anymore? He fired the doctor. No. He kept a pack of smokes in his desk drawer in the White House just to be like, I can resist you. Oh, wow. What a strong will he had. Yeah. He's like, I think he just stared at things and tried to crush them with his own mind. So because he had a strong will, does that mean he can't do evil? I think he can stand up to evil, face it down, and destroy it. What a hero. Whether it's cigarettes or the Nazis, <laughs> right? All right. So why do people? Why are people victims, Tim, according to Aristotle? Uh, if they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That's like, one thing. Like uh, 
basically, if you look like an easy mark, there's a good you're chance not, you're that you're going to be victimized. Or if you have something valuable or yeah. something resourceful. Yeah, whether you look like an easy mark or not, you're walking down the street with the Hope Diamond around your neck, there's a good chance yeah. that uh, you could be the Somebody's victim of something. Be, yeah. yeah, so that's why I like to walk around acting, you know, puffing my chest out and then saying, I have no money, <laughs> right? That's how I avoid criminals. So let's say you get caught. Aristotle says you get caught, you do some wrongdoing, you get caught. What affects the seriousness of your wrongdoing? Well, what was your intent? You did something wrong, but you did it with malicious intent, or yeah. it was just sort of, you know. You accidentally ate your parents. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, we've all been in that situation. Yeah. Who hasn't? Yeah. Right? Or if you've had a past history of crimes, right? If, oh, you, if you've eaten your parents before, and yeah. then you eat them again. Yeah. Right? Now, your, your rap sheet basically has a big impact on how seriousness your most recent crime is considered. You know, that's an interesting situation because if your rap sheet's always clean and you always get out of trouble, well, yeah. a bunch of, you know. You, you're, uh, what is it? Do a bunch of unproven crimes suggest that you're a criminal person? It's hard to say. It's hard to say, right? Uh, another thing that can uh, affect the seriousness of it is the amount of harm you've put on the victim, right? Exactly. So if you cause them great, great distress, yeah. you've done a very serious crime. So if somebody stole my 10-year-old Mazda 3 hatchback, that's bad enough. It's the yeah, only it is car. a valuable resource it's, you have. It's the only thing I have. But what if I had a brand-new Lexus convertible? That is much more serious. Mm -hmm. And then the, the injustice would be all that greater. Absolutely. You could almost say that if they stole your old car, that would be a valuable thing to you. Well, if it was if insurance covered it, but I think I only have liability now. Once they get to be about ten years old, I'd take off the uh, the comprehensive. Might as well just crash into a river. <laughs> All right. And so the last thing that affects the seriousness of wrongdoing is if it's a rare or an exceptional crime. Yeah. So, so again, you know, rare crime. Well, maybe the rarity. You know, if you stole something that was exceedingly rare, that would be uh, mm -hmm. a more serious. Like the Hope Diamond. Exactly. Like the Hope Diamond. Uh, or exceptional. So basically, you not only ate your parents, you ate all your siblings too. Wow! Right? That's you don't you don't hear that every day. No, that's not on the news. Okay. So Tim, we're talking about forensic rhetoric. We've talked about all these various things. So when you're actually advocating in the courtroom or wherever it might be about what happened in the past, what what sources can the forensic speaker draw upon? Well, certainly the laws. Right, basically. especially for those written or, or specific laws? Yeah, or, if or you know the laws, laws then you can claim that your client didn't break any law, what he did wasn't illegal. Mm -hmm. Or you could conversely, if you're accusing them, you could say, here's the law, you're not supposed to do it. She did it, therefore she is guilty of breaking that law. Right, so there's laws and you also, this can suggested witnesses, right? Yeah. Somebody no, saw you do it. Witnesses, that's gotten tricky recently because they realize that two eyewitnesses will see two very different things. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the past, it was always assumed that a, a credible person being an eyewitness, that, that uh, was good, that was uh, good evidence to draw upon. Or contracts, that's another thing a, a forensic speaker can draw upon? Yeah, if you and I come to a written agreement and uh -huh. then you break that agreement, we go back to the writing and it says right there, you said uh -huh. you were gonna give me 30 cheeseburgers a month and you welched on your debt. Yeah, or I could get my high-priced lawyers to say this contract is bad, null and void. Exactly. Uh, another thing that you can draw upon, a forensic speaker can draw upon are, is torture. Yeah, and that gets back to something we mentioned before. We've got this wonderful democracy here in Athens. Well, it's a democracy if you're a male, native-born Athenian, etc. But if you're a slave, not only do you not have the benefits of democracy, uh, you can be bragged 
dragged into court and actually tortured in order to determine whether or not this case is going to be, you know, someone found guilty or not guilty. You know, and I appreciate that Aristotle mentions uh, that if information is gained from somebody who's being tortured, you can uh, uh, disprove that by saying, well, they said it just because they were tortured. Yeah. But he also says, on the other hand, that if you got information from somebody from being tortured, you could say, look how good this information is, what they were willing to endure to keep that from getting out. Yeah. It's problematic, isn't it? Yeah, well, Aristotle, in a couple of places, he seems to have it both ways. He seems to, yeah. It's, yeah, he does. Uh, and the last one, the last source, are oaths. Yeah, and that was a little more serious back in the day when they kind of believed, okay, there's multiple gods here paying attention to me, and so if I take an oath on one of the gods, there's a pretty good chance that god could come down and strike me with lightning, etc. Mm -hmm. But still today, we have people, they swear on a Bible or they swear on a Koran, so we have this tradition in our forensic settings of people swearing on some document that they hold to be sacred mm -hmm. that they are going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Absolutely. There you go. All right, Tim. So what is forensic rhetoric? For me, forensic rhetoric is all about the nature of wrongdoing in a crime. Aristotle tells us a lot about deliberative and epideictic rhetoric, about how to make those speeches. I think here he's talking more about the general nature of crime and doesn't give us as much uh, uh, advice to the speaker on how to actually advocate in the courtroom other than those last points that we just talked about in terms of sources to draw upon. I couldn't agree more. What do you think? What's a, what's a take-home point for you? My take-home point that forensic is, I think it's the richest and meatiest of the three genres. And like it's the double cheeseburger of the three It is the, the double genres. cheeseburger of the genres because it is so dramatic. Mm -hmm. And think of the popularity of Perry Mason or L.A. Law or Law and Order. Or the People's Court. Or the People's Court or Judge Judy. Basically, we like to look in on this contest between two sides, mm -hmm. and we don't know what the outcome will be. And the final outcome, so it's, it's a combination of a mystery. It's got uh, some pretty high stakes. Sometimes the person found guilty is going to jail, or they're being put to death, or they're going to have to pay for the other person's car that they messed up. So it's exciting. It's dramatic, it has real-world consequences, and until the final verdict, we don't know what it's gonna, how it's gonna turn out. That's what makes it so exciting. That's beautiful. Are you ready for your challenge, Tim? I am. So Tim, we talked about early on that there are special or particular laws, writ laws that are written down, and then there are customer norms, right? The general or universal law. And those are the two types of things a person can violate. Right. So what happens if those two are in conflict? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a very good question. And so, yeah, you could have sort of a, a universal human um, rule that says you uh, should treat others as you would be treated yourself, but then someone could pass a law, which turns out is very much discriminatory against uh -huh. some other group. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we have a lot of those cases. And so we have a history of you kind of go up this chain of courts and eventually get to a better court that says, oh, no, you can't have passed that restrictive law in your community because it violates an overarching law. So a lot of times it's a state law violates a federal law, mm -hmm. but the similar thing could be a local written ordinance violates a higher law that is one of these sort of universal human laws of good behavior. Mm -hmm. For example, let's say I get in my car and I went speeding. Oh, speeding. It's my second favorite crime to commit other than petty theft, right? I'm speeding down the road. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I get pulled over and I get a ticket. Mm-hmm. So that's a violation of a special or particular law written down. But let's say I'm taking my wife to the hospital to deliver a child. That's yeah. somewhat universal, right? That is. And so I would think that the universal law would trump that one. Oh, wow. Well, one of the things is uh, if you violated a speeding law and were pulled over by the, a police officer and she said, what's the big hurry? And you say, my wife has given birth. i got to get her to the hospital. She's probably going to let you She's slide. She's probably going to tase me. <laughs> no. <laughs> She's going to let you slide. Out. She's going to give you a police escort to the hospital. Well, that would be nice, right? So that's so the, the universal law would, would win, win out. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. We good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit. I've got a historical anecdote that this time combines two people we've already met. We already met Mark Antony in his Julius Caesar play and his actual speech of the body of Caesar. And we also already met Cicero. Well, these two guys have a connection because after, after Caesar is assassinated, Mark Antony is one of three guys who kind of rises to power. Cicero is opposed to this group of three guys taking power. So he writes several speeches against Mark Antony, really ticks him off. So Mark Antony puts a contract out on Cicero and has his head cut off and his hands cut off and displays the head and the hands near the rostrum in the Roman Forum. So Cicero is an orator, a rhetorician, and a politician. Antony is an orator, a politician, and a general. So it looks like, in this case, generals trump rhetoricians. That guy sounds like a real jerk. I agree. All right. Uh, Before we go get some cheeseburgers, you ready to take care of some business? I am. All right, Tim, who's sponsoring today's episode? Today's episode is sponsored by Epic Tours and Travel. Tired of visiting the same old vacation spots year after year? Yearning for something more adventurous? How would you like to follow in the footsteps of Wiley Odysseus and the pious Aeneas? Well, now you can simply by signing up with Epic Tours and Travel. Our Wonders of the Underworld package includes round-trip passage across the river Styx and pre-sanitized mouth coins to pay care on the ferryman. Upon reaching the other shore, you can visit any one of four breathtaking destinations, Tartarus, Asphodel Meadows, Morning Fields, and Elysium, with an optional side excursion to the Isles of the Blessed. You will be able to reconnect with fallen comrades or revisit your deceased parents. Feel free to ask their forgiveness or grant them yours, as the case may be. All Epic Tours of Hades include five chalices of freshly drawn blood to get the spirits talking. We guarantee you won't be disappointed to learn just where some of the great figures of history finally ended up. Why spend your hard-earned holidays in the humdrum locales of this world when, for a perfectly reasonable fee and a few blood oaths and sacrifices, you can visit the underworld, speak with the dead, foresee your terrestrial future, and maybe even learn where you'll be headed when the time comes. Again, that's Epic Tours of Hades, the original home of all-inclusive excursions to the final resting place of your friends, enemies, family members, and everyone else who ever lived. Come on down and join the fun. Tours leaving nightly. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim, as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago. Rhetoric Orama is, is recorded at Casto di Pado Studios. If you have any questions or looking for more information, you can c- contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or you can consult your local library. 
Now let's get some cheeseburgers.